0: You're listening to the Sermon Audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our
1: website at mymillcreek.com. This is what the Word of the Lord says. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself... Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I proved myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for preserving it throughout centuries. Father, we uh, thank you so much that it is useful, as 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training up in righteousness. Father, we pray that that would be uh, what it does in us today. Father, would you transform us? Would you conform us to the image of Christ? And would we be made new uh, by the hearing and teaching of your word? Father, would we be receptive to it? And would we respond in faith and obedience? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.
2: Thank you, Matt, so much. Great to have you with us, with your beautiful bride. Good morning, all. Um, As as David said, I'm Chris Isaacs. I'm one of the elders here. How do you deal with conflict? Do you you want to fight? Are you a fighter? Or would you prefer to just flee, flight? Uh, Prefer to just shirk away? Well, I've been a fighter since I was really young. My parents tell the story of when I was five years old or so. I had introduced myself to my aunt. I said, my name is Chris and I'm tough. So I'm not very eloquent, but that's just my attitude. So if you, if you look up here, you can see that this is sometimes how our family handles conflict. It's not very effective in actually resolving conflict, but as parents, it's a lot of fun to watch, especially Ava landing that right hook on Noah's face. Um, some people, including my wife, have told me I'm a bit intense, just a skosh. And while I may not have a bopper in my hand, my words can really hit people hard. In the last year, I was meeting with a good friend, and we were talking about a shared experience in the past. And based on how the conversation progressed, it was obvious he was still quite angry about how he'd been treated by others during that experience. We had quite an awkward moment as he kept talking and voicing his frustration. And while I understood his perspective, since we've been friends for a long time and I was there when when he was hurt, I also knew the other parties, and I didn't necessarily agree completely with the way he recollected this. And I also saw deep bitterness pouring out of him. And I could recognize it in him only because I've i have I've had similar sins in my own life. I've had guilt in my own life where I've held bitterness towards someone close to me. and And it's always ugly. And like many other sins, bitterness is so much easier to see in other people than in yourself. So I interrupted my friend and said, Sometimes it's best to not say anything, but it seems that you're bitter about something that happened a long time ago, and you need to forgive the person. And the rest of that conversation was not fun, and it was not easy. It was super awkward. In fact, I remember leaving and wondering if and how the next conversation would go. Well, today we're going to examine a very direct confrontation in the book of Galatians between two apostles and how it follows what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 18. Now, this is the middle of a five-week series, preaching series on biblical conflict resolution. And Jeremy's already preached two weeks on Matthew 18 with the topics of humility, the right attitude we should have in conflict and our responsibility in conflict. And he'll continue and finish the series the next two weeks. So you, you might be surprised as we go through this, who's at conflict. Now, Galatians 2, 11 through 21 provides an amazing example of how to handle gospel conflict. But the people at conflict in this text are not two people in the back bickering. They're not our kids beating each other up with boppers in the backyard. This is Paul and Peter, and Barnabas. And it's a great example of how Matthew 18 and the principles of gospel conflict resolution were applied and how we can apply them today. So, channeling Jeremy here. So if you have your Bible, which I hope you do, please open it to the book of Galatians chapter 2. And as you're doing that, I want to provide some brief context on the book of Galatians as it leads up to this conflict. In chapter 2. Now please stay with me, especially you kids. This context is going to be a bit longer than you probably get during a normal sermon, but stay with me. We haven't been in the book of Galatians, and I think you need to know it in order for you to capture what God wants to tell us in the text. Okay? So what's this book of Galatians all about? Well, Paul, in chapter one, Paul starts out, and Paul is writing to the to the Galatians regarding the true gospel. He's making the case there aren't many gospels, there is one gospel. And he's establishing his calling as an apostle of God, preaching that one true gospel. Now, he wasn't one of the original apostles, but the Lord appeared to him on the Damascus Road, and he revealed the truth to him about Jesus, and the Lord called him to preach the one true gospel to the Gentiles. And and what is that gospel that God has called him to preach to the Gentiles? Well, look in the text, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. The Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. That, quite simply, is the gospel. That's the gospel that Paul is preaching to the Gentiles. And he's saying, there's only one, and God's called me to preach it. So, that takes us into chapter two we'll skip some verses in chapter one but chapter two starts out and Paul goes up to Jerusalem after 14 years in Arabia or Damascus. now he's been living in relative obscurity since his Damascus road experience when the Lord called him but he goes up to Jerusalem with two people. he goes up with Barnabas and Titus and Titus is not a Jew he's a Gentile but why did Why did Paul go up with Barnabas and Titus? Because of a revelation of the Lord to set before them the gospel. But he's not met very nicely by the brothers there. It says, in fact, he's met with resistance by false brothers who wanted all the Gentiles to be circumcised in order to have fellowship or in order to be believers. Now, why? Why did these false brothers resist Paul and Barnabas and Titus. Well, these false brothers, they liked the current status quo. They liked the power structure that they had, and they wanted, they wanted to enslave the believers with legalistic additions to the gospel. They wanted the gospel to be Jesus plus something. And in this case, it was Jesus plus circumcision. Now, it's probably not a temptation for you today to say, the gospel is Jesus plus circumcision. Most boys in this world are circumcised at birth because for health reasons and good reasons at that. But it is natural for every human being to want to believe that we can contribute something to our salvation. We want to believe that we have something to contribute to our salvation. That, yeah, we really need Jesus, but... I can help help it along. I can do something to earn the favor of God. But the irony is that our attempted contribution to our salvation actually enslaves us and others. While we're seeking freedom through that, those who say, I do a whole bunch of good works and Jesus, or a whole bunch of good works and maybe not Jesus, they seek freedom through that, it actually leads to slavery. And Paul and Barnabas and Titus, they see how wrong this this teaching is, and they don't yield for a moment to these false brothers. Why? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for the Galatian believers. And the influential in Jerusalem who are called pillars, who are James and Cephas or Peter and John, they see that Paul has been entrusted to preach the gospel to the Gentiles just as Peter had been entrusted to preach the gospel to the Jews. And in fact, they see that it's the same God, it's the same spirit working through Peter and Paul. In fact, if you you were to check out Acts chapter 10, you'd see that's where the Lord reveals clearly to Peter and his Jewish brothers that the gospel is for the Gentiles also as the Holy Spirit's poured out on them and many of them are baptized. So the pillars, James and Peter and John, they, they perceive that God's given Paul and Barnabas this great grace to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And they, in verse 10 of Galatians 2, they extend the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas and Paul should go to the Gentiles and James and Peter and John, they should go to the Jews. And they ask each other, remember the poor, the things they're eager to do together. And I'm telling you what, if you've ever been to a mountaintop, this is a mountaintop experience in ministry. This is like, all right, they have shared purpose. They're going to go preach the gospel to the Jews and Gentiles alike. There's sweet fellowship amongst brothers. But the clouds are forming on the horizon because with this context in mind, we get to our text today. And in one verse, we go from the right hand of fellowship amongst brothers to, amongst apostles, to gospel confrontation in verse 11. It says, When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? You see, we go from the hand of fellowship amongst apostles to gospel conflict and why. Why did it come so abruptly? Well, Peter was sinning. And that's the main problem of this text, is that our sin distorts the gospel. Peter's sin was distorting the gospel to the Galatian believers. And his hypocrisy, which was driven by the fear of man, the fear of the circumcision party, was contrary to gospel truth. While Peter clearly knew the gospel, God had declared it, the gospel was, was for Jew and Gentile alike and that justification was by faith alone, he was preaching one thing, but he was living as if justification came by works of the law, in this case, circumcision. See, Peter had adopted some Gentile living freely, but now he expected the Gentiles to live like Jews. And this led other Jews into sin also, and even Barnabas. Barnabas was Paul's dearest friend, was led astray by this. I want to take just a brief pause here for a bit of application. If Barnabas, known as the son of encouragement, an amazing man of the Scriptures, can be led astray into sin by another sin, your sin never just impacts you. Peter's sin didn't just impact him. In this case, it was a relatively public thing, but no matter, if you think your sin that is however private or small and inconsequential, you might think it is, your sin and my sin never just impacts you or me. It always has an impact that's greater than that. And sin distorts the gospel. Our sin distorts the gospel. So what did Paul do because he knew the gospel? Well, the gospel demanded that he confront sin, which is the second point, which is the gospel confronts sin. In verse 11, it says, "'And when Cephas came to Antioch, "'I opposed him to his face.'" I opposed him to his face. If you remember back in Matthew 18, this sounds an awful lot like Matthew eighteen fifteen, which says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And then in verse 14 of Galatians chapter 2, it says, So I said to Cephas before them all. Sounds a lot like Matthew 18, verses 17, verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, to be fair, in Matthew 18, there's a step in between there where you go to, go to this brother or sister with somebody else. That's not in Galatians 2. I, that may have happened. I don't know. I'm not going to read into Scripture what I don't see there, but I think Paul is following the pattern here of what how we're supposed to address gospel conflict. So our sin distorts the gospel, and the gospel confronts sin. But how do you? How do you do it? Well, and what's the impact? You go with the gospel. You lead with the gospel. Because the third point is the gospel itself frees us from sin. You see, justification by faith in Christ and not by works of the law is the answer to the conflict. When we go to resolve a conflict, we remind people of the gospel. That's what Paul did, he reminded them of the gospel. If you look in verses 15 through 21, it says we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, Is Christ then a servant of sin? Well, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see, the gospel frees us from sin. Jesus solved our biggest problem. This is a series on biblical conflict resolution, but the biggest conflict ever in the history of man is our conflict with God. And unless you have committed your life to Christ, you are a conflict that God... You're at you're conflict with God, then you cannot resolve it. But Jesus has solved our biggest problem. He loved us and He gave Himself for our sins. He freed us from this sin. And this is why Paul, when he's addressing Peter, he's addressing him with the gospel. So I think hopefully you have a, a better picture of the book of Galatians and what. This text, chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, meant to them then what the context was, what, why Paul was confronting Peter, and why he gave him the gospel. As I was studying this, I think there is an incredible amount that applies to us now. We know what it meant to them then, but there's a great amount that we can apply today to us now, because If you're not in conflict now, it's coming or you just got out of it because we live in a sinful world and you're sinful and you're going to be at odds with somebody. So how are we to deal with it? First point of application is quite simple. Believe that you are justified only by faith in Christ. Believe you are justified only by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. You might be saying, well duh Chris, this is so obvious, but why are you bringing bringing this up in the context of conflict resolution? Well, remember two weeks ago, Jeremy talked about what's a proper attitude when we have conflict and we need to address it. It's humility. And a telltale sign that somebody's practically not living in step with the truth of the gospel is they're full of pride. They lack humility. Because somebody who's prideful has self-righteousness; they think that they can add something to the gospel. That's what the false brothers were doing. So it's pride, and that's that one's relatively easy to cap to to think about. I think what's maybe more deceptive is somebody who is overcome with shame. Oh, I, I've, I've done done terrible things. God could never forgive me. No one will ever be able to forgive me. Am I? i'm hopeless that's not the gospel the gospel says that he freed us from sin he he loved us and he gave himself for us you no longer need to be overcome with shame you're not practically living as if you're justified by faith in christ alone you're living as if you need to do some things in order to clean yourself up for god that's not the gospel first believe that you are justified by faith in Christ alone. Practically live that way. The second point is, again, simple. I'm a simple guy, a farm kid from Nebraska. Confront sin that is contrary to the gospel. And my guess is, because this is the way I would think, You're thinking, yeah, I need to go to that person. I'm going to confront sin in their life, and we're going to get that we're going to get that fixed. Before you go apply it that way, first examine yourself. Are you living in a way that's consistent with the gospel? Are you is your conduct in step with the truth of the gospel? One of the ways to know if you are is are you willing to receive rebuke? If somebody brings something up to you, especially someone that's close to you, like your spouse or your kid or a dear friend, how do you take that when somebody when somebody points something out in your life that might be wrong? Are you defensive or do you take it humbly? And more so, are you even willing to accept correction or rebuke from a non-believer? Maybe it's in a workplace or your neighborhood or a social setting and, and they see something in your life and that they don't appreciate. Maybe they don't communicate it very well, but what they're saying is actually true. How do, you, how do you accept that? So first, as you're confronting sin that's contrary to the gospel, confront it in your own life. First, take the log out of your own eye so that then you can help restore another. And once you've humbly done that and repented of any sin, then you would be ready, then we would be ready to lovingly confront other believers whose conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And this is where God in his infinite wisdom gave us scripture that is timeless and he even tells us how, I think. If you look in verse 11, it says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Now, clearly there was no internet, telephone, text, social media any of that during this time. None of that. So does this no longer apply to this? I believe it absolutely applies to us today. If we are going to address conflict, we go face to face. Not through gossiping to another person. Not through a long text. Not through a meticulously crafted email that can be easily misinterpreted, not through some other means, not even through a phone call where you can't read the person's body language, and maybe not even through Zoom or a video conference. Brothers and sisters, conflict resolution is not done at a keyboard. It's not done at a keyboard, and then you hit send, and you, you wait for the the damage to be done when you go to somebody face to face it's a sign of love do you love the person enough to go to them do you have enough courage to do that or you just want to send an email or you just want to send some text when Paul went to Peter he opposed him face to face because Peter was clearly in the wrong. And he did it in love. And that's what we need to do. it. That's how we can do it. That's how God has commanded us to do it. But why? Why did, why did Paul go to Peter? What is, what is to be our motive when we confront somebody about sin that's not consistent with the gospel? Our motive is that we lead with the gospel. Our motive, what did Paul say? So that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. That was his motive. He was very concerned about the believers, that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for them. So he went to Peter. That should be our motive. So when we see a person's conduct not in step with the truth of the gospel, we go to them. But as you do that, you need to consider, is that person's conduct not in step with the truth of the gospel, or is it not in step with your preferences? Let me say that again. Is it not in step with the truth of the gospel, or not in step with your preferences? Now, there are clear things that are not in step with the truth of the gospel, if a person is denying the person and work of Jesus Christ, if they're in open moral failure, if they're denying the sufficiency and inerrancy of God's word, if they're denying the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, if they're denying that, that there's original sin, or that we have sin in our lives, or the, or the image of God in every human being, or they're causing divisiveness in the church, or they're full of greed or bitterness, or they're gossiping, there's are some things that are, or they're addicted to some substance. Like there are things that are clear to not, that are not in step with the truth of the gospel. But there's a whole list of things that may not be in step with your preferences. That's not what this is talking about. They may not be in step with your preferences on politics or masks or vaccines or instruments in a Sunday service or parenting style or your dress code that's appropriate in any context or what music you should listen to or whether you should send your kids to public, private, or homeschool, whether or not you should use traditional homeopathic medicine, whether, what the right personality type is. The list of preferences can go on and on and on and on. And that's not what Paul's talking about here. We are to confront sin that is contrary to the truth of the gospel, not preferences. Why do I bring this up? Because over the last 18 months, there's been a lot of hurt done and confrontation on preferences. And we as an elder, a group of elders over the last two years have put together a document. It's not inerrant. It's a document put together by a group of men it's in the back. It's called Essentials, Convictions, and Preferences. And there are things that are essential to the faith, the statement of faith. And there are convictions that we hold strongly. And then there's a list of preferences that people hold a a bunch of different views on that are within the pale of orthodoxy. Not everything is essential. (laughs) There's more than one bucket And what we've seen, what I've seen across the last 18 months is people hurting each other. Satan has used divisiveness on preferences to divide the church. Focus on the essentials. And if you're going to confront somebody, do it for the gospel, not for your preference. And if, you're, if your attitude's right, and you're humble before the Lord, you've confessed sin that you're aware of, and, and you've, you've assessed, yeah, I, I think this person's conduct's not in step with the truth of the gospel, about an essential, that they really need to hear about this, and I love them. Well, then what is your goal? And you go to them. If you turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, Starting in chapter 1, it says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a sense of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the goal is restoration. This brother or sister is caught in a sin and the goal is to restore them. The goal is not for you to be right. It's not for me to be right. The goal is restoration, not for you to be right. And I've gotta confess, Cassie's sitting here, she's my beloved bride, been married almost 20 years. And there have been too many times where I've gone to address her and I've cared way more about being right than restoring her and buried her burden. And my guess is, you have as well. And I've also been on the receiving end of rebuke from a dear friend in this church. And at the time, this person rebuked me, it felt terrible. It felt mean. It felt over the top. I remember leaving the meeting, overcome by emotion, hurt, angry. I I couldn't talk. However, after considering the friend's love for me and the truth of their statements, God used it to move me to repentance and action. So when somebody comes to you and they confront you, it's not going to feel good. It's probably going to feel crummy. But we're not to be controlled by our feelings. Take the time. Consider who they are. Do they love you? Consider their words. Are they telling you the truth? And then examine yourself. If if they're telling you the truth, and your conduct's not in step with the truth of the gospel, well, then repent. And be free of it. They love you. That's God's gift. That was a gift from a friend who confronted me. Which leads us to the sermon, the sentence for today, which is that the gospel confronts and frees from sin. The gospel confronts and frees from sin. The book of Galatians is silent on how Peter, Barnabas, And the other Jews responded to Paul's sharp, gospel-centered rebuke. However, history tells us that Peter and Barnabas were martyred for preaching the gospel as they persevered in the faith. And also, the gospel spread far and wide to Gentiles around the world, including us. Paul's confrontation with Peter was not based on his own righteousness, but only on the righteousness of God, Received by faith in Christ. Paul was fine if the gospel pointed out that he was the chief of sinners. And in fact, it did. And he rejoiced in that, in the freedom of the gospel. Paul had to confront a dear brother, an apostle. And you may need to confront a dear brother or sister in Christ for the sake of the gospel. Start with humility from rightly understanding and applying the gospel in your own life. And then seek to confront and restore with a spirit of gentleness, desiring to bear one another's burdens and fulfill the law of Christ. Well, just as our kids can contrive a lot of ways to deal with conflict that are kind of selfish, mankind has been thinking of ways to try to resolve conflict or deal with conflict for ages. Think of how many wars we've had. Think of all the ways in which we we fight as human beings. But God has made it clear in the Bible in Matthew 18, Galatians 2, and elsewhere how we are to deal with conflict. It is not easy or fun at the moment, and it may never be, but it is right and it is good and it is pleasing to the Lord. So what motivated Paul should motivate us? That the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you and for them. So, do we love one another enough to gently, directly, and truthfully confront each other when someone's not living in step with the truth of the gospel? This is God's plan. Not easy, but good. May we be ruthless, humble, and ruthless with sin in our own lives so that we can be useful. In gently restoring others that are caught in sin. Well, as I started, I mentioned I mentioned a conversation I had with a dear friend who who I perceived was was struggling with bitterness in the confrontation, the very awkward conversation we have. Well, that dear friend is uh, I'd like to invite up to the stage now. He's graciously invited graciously um, been willing to come share kind of the rest of the story uh, about how that conflict was resolved and and how it can work amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. So this is Kenny Conklin. While they're getting to the mic, Kenny's a dear, dear brother in Christ. We've known each other for almost 20 years. We've done a lot of things together, and uh, he's one of God's greatest gifts to me in this world. So for him to do this is just way above the call of duty for a friend. Um, But I've been praying all week that God would use it to encourage you in your relationships. So, Kenny, how did you feel when I confronted you about bitterness?
0: Uh, I think initially it was um, uh, disbelief, defensive, uh, like like you were talking uh, as you were teaching, uh, but just to set this up, if you will, um, this Bible here Chris gave to me, and he, he actually dated it. Here. It's uh, January 1st, 2000, or January 30th, 2004. And so, um, just to kind of set it up a little bit, um, we both started at at a at a, uh, at, at a place at, in our in our earlier in our careers that we worked together. I was not a believer. Um, we were in, I would say, fierce competition early on, almost immature. Uh, he left. No, it uh, was immature. It was definitely immature. I'll just say, yeah. Uh, and um, uh, he left after, after a while. And from the beginning that we started in competition, uh, we ended up as friends. And uh, he invited me to a coffee shop um, up in North Kansas City called Le Mans Bakery, Great Pastries. And uh, he gave me this uh, pretty shortly after we met. And um, Chris and I have met um, ever since. Uh, it's been, we've been on, in a lot of uh, places. Uh, I think we've single-handedly kept some coffee shops in business, possibly. Uh, and so uh, when, when Chris confronted me and, and we had this uh, conversation, um, uh, it was about things that had happened in the past, and I had this strange tension in my mind. It's, it's what I was saying I thought was logical, but something was coming out of my heart, and those words were coming together. And I could tell, I could, I could tell that it, Chris was getting really uncomfortable because he was kind of sleeking down in his chair and, you know, his face was kind of making, you know, the faces that I know of Chris over the time when I'm saying something that he doesn't approve with. And, um, and after, I think I just paused for a while, um, you know, he, he, he looked at me and, uh, and I knew that it was something serious was going to come out. And he said, Kenny, uh, sometimes I think it's best to just not say anything, and then he said, I think you're very bitter about this situation. And that's when I was in disbelief. I, I was in a defensive posture, and we had this very awkward moment. It lasted, I don't know, it felt like a long time. Just silence. And I looked at him, and I said, you're right. And I spent the next, I don't know, several weeks thinking about this thing, because I, I felt like, for those of you who know who this guy is, I felt like Muhammad Ali punched me in the face. And, and I felt dazed, and I was kind of walking through the next few weeks thinking about, wow, I never really thought of myself as a bitter person. I had things in my childhood that um, I've had to have forgiveness, forgive people for and things like that, but I never thought that I was, you know, a, a, a bitter person. So I, you know, went into the book, the good Bible, um, I, uh, I read, I prayed, um, we had conversations, I'm sure, since then. have mm-hmm. met so many times, it all just kind of seems like they come together. Um, but uh, there's not a lot of verses in the Bible that have to do with bitterness, and um, but there is one that I think um, really kind of helped me, and that's Proverbs fourteen, uh, uh, Proverbs fourteen ten. Each heart knows its own bitterness. I think that's what was happening to me that day is that I had this logical mind, but my heart was really showing what was going on
2: uh, during that moment. Hmm. Thanks, Kenny, for sharing so openly um, about how, how you felt and the, the resolution there. I guess anything. How could I have done better in a in addressing you. Because oftentimes what happens in these is when you confront somebody, it's you're never perfect in the way you do it. So anything I could have done be- better in the way I confronted you?
0: I, I, I've been thinking about this since you posed the question. Uh, when you posed all these questions, they were, they were like, wow, gosh, I really got to think about these. Um, I honestly felt like you did an amazing job of understanding where I was at emotionally, um, really uh, addressing me at that stage, being serious about it. And quite frankly, just listening. And there wasn't a resolution. It was. A, it was. A, it was a, there was a tension. There wasn't a resolution.
2: And so maybe just a, this is a unscripted, Kenny. Since Uh-oh. we're in the second service, I thought we'd just add one here. <laughs> I knew so, there was another question. <laughs> so talk to, me, talk to us about what happened in your heart. Like, how did you respond to the confrontation after you left the meeting? And uh, because I've noticed some amazing things in your life since then, frankly. But just... What happened in your heart
0: after that I would th- you know I, I think that um, I am much more conscious about somebody who may say something that you know may be perceived as offensive or uh, make me angry or something like that uh, you know i'm I'm much quicker at trying to identify it and, and quite frankly, um, when I was unpacking the things that were just coming up, I realized that most of them were preferences and were things that I shouldn't have been mad at. The situation about and that i didn't have the full context and so it's really kind of stepping back and trying to understand sooner um bitterness is a silent killer and uh and it can really grip hold of you and so i really try hard now to uh you know much earlier
2: mm. identify i would say as mm. best i can so kenny here's the fun part for you can you share an example of a time when you've had to confront me
0: so, kind of going back to uh, the beginning uh, of our relationship, uh, that started out with pretty intense uh, competition. Um, there have been instances uh, over the over the years where I've had to say, "Chris, that's a little intense," you know, and uh, and we've had discussions around that. But I would say that's but, like- but 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 honestly, I I think it's like any most of us, um, our strength is our weakness, right? Chris is a highly competitive individual. He's been amazing, but. You know just like things that I have, we got to keep those things in check too. that's why relationships matter and uh, and just being direct matters. Yeah.
2: Thank you, Kenny, for being willing to do this. Hopefully you've gained something from it. God's plan for us in resolving conflict is good. It works. The reason that Kenny's been willing to do this, and I was so encouraged is that. We need relationships like this. You need relationships like this where people could speak into your life. I need relationships like this. You need to invest time. Kenny talked about we've known each other for almost two decades. I think if we'd known each other or hadn't spent any time together, he wouldn't have listened. And I wouldn't have listened to him likewise. You need to invest time so that there's something to draw on when you need to confront somebody. But God's plan is good. Uh, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for the gospel that you have resolved our greatest conflict, our greatest problem, which is that we are at odds with you and that you have loved us and gave yourself for our sins. Lord, I pray that we would apply your scripture in dealing with conflict amongst ourselves uh, that those who are caught in sin might be restored. If you like
0: what you've heard or want to find out more information please visit our website at mymillcreek.com